Introduction. It is quite possible that war is the continuation of politics by another means. But isn't politics itself a continuation of war by other means? Michel Foucault. No collectivity of people in U.S. American society is as enigmatic or misunderstood as indigenous peoples. From the very first encounters with them five centuries ago, Europeans were confounded by these peoples who looked so different and lived lives that seemed not just diametrically opposed to theirs, but even blasphemous. Europeans brought with them their fears and prejudices, accompanied by a sense of entitlement to the land that had been home to the indigenous peoples for untold thousands of years. They were occasionally respected by the newcomers, some of whom voluntarily left their own communities in the early days of settlement to live among the Indians. They learned to speak the natives' languages, intermarried, and had children with them, sometimes for love or companionship, sometimes just to build alliances and gain access to native territories and to convert them to Christianity. But by and large, the history of relations between indigenous and settler is fraught with conflict, defined by a struggle for land, which is inevitably a struggle for power and control. 500 years later, native peoples are still fighting to protect their lands and their rights to exist as distinct political communities and individuals. Most U.S. citizens' knowledge about Indians is inaccurate, distorted, or limited to elementary school textbooks, cheesy old spaghetti westerns, or more contemporary films like Dances with Wolves or The Last of the Mohicans. Few can name more than a handful of native nations out of the over 500 that still exist or can tell you who Leonard Peltier is. Mention Indian gaming and they will have strong opinions about it one way or another. Some might even have an Indian casino in their community, but they will probably be curiously incurious if you ask them how Indian gaming came to be or about the history of the nation that owns the casino. In many parts of the country, it's not uncommon for non-native peoples to have never meet to have never met a native person or to assume that there are no Indians who live among them. On the other hand, in places where there is a concentration of natives, like in reservation border towns, what non-native people think they know about Indians is typically limited to racist tropes about drunk or lazy Indians. They are seen as people who are maladjusted to the modern world and cannot free themselves from their tragic past. On the whole, it can be said that the average U.S. citizen's knowledge about American Indians is confined to a collection of well-worn myths and half-truths that have Native people either not existing at all or existing in a way that fails to live up to their expectations about who real Indians are. If Indians do exist, they are seen as mere shadows of their former selves, 
making counterfeit identity claims, or performing fraudulent acts of Indianness that are no longer authentic or even relevant. Non-natives thus position themselves, either wittingly or unwittingly, as being the true experts about Indians and their histories. And it happens at all levels of society, from the uneducated all the way up to those with advanced college degrees, and even in the halls of Congress. The result is the perpetual erasure of Indians from the U.S. political and cultural landscape. In short, for five centuries, Indians have been disappearing in the collective imagination. They are disappearing in plain sight. The myths about indigenous peoples that this book identifies can be traced to narratives of erasure. They have had, and continue to have, a profoundly negative impact on the lives of millions of native people who still live on the continent of their ancient ancestors. They work further to keep non-natives in a state of ignorance, forever misinformed and condemned to repeat the mistakes of history, silently eroding their own humanity when they fail to recognize their roles in, or more specifically, the ways they benefit from, the ongoing injustice of a colonial system. For Native people, the effects are felt at every level of personal and public life. They play out in a dizzying array of overt and subtly bigoted ways, resulting in what social scientists call structural violence. Structural violence describes social arrangements that cause harm to people as they are embedded in the social and political structures of society. It can be so blatant that it manifests in acts of individual physical violence, but it can just as easily result in harm by neglect. Erasure is one of the more subtle forms of structural violence visited upon Native peoples. At a cultural level, structural violence shows up in dehumanizing portrayals of caricaturized images of Indians in the name of honor and respect. This is most obvious in the stubborn adherence to Indian sports mascot mascots as in the case of Dan Snyder's Washington Redskins team name. It is also visible in cultural appropriations, such as the ubiquitous and seemingly harmless Indian Halloween costumes and feather headdresses worn at music festivals or by models for fashion layouts and runway displays. Cultural appropriation is especially egregious when it involves the co-optation of spiritual ceremonies and the inappropriate use of lands deemed sacred by native peoples. The New Age movement is a Pandora's box full of examples of what has been called the plastic or white shaman. Misuse of sacred land has a long history, and it continues. In 2015, Lakota people in South Dakota protested the annual hippie rainbow family gathering in the sacred Paha Sapa, Black Hills. The Lakota claimed that these gatherings have a long history of destructive land use and also cited rainbow family drug culture, which they saw as highly disrespectful 
in a place they believe to be the heart and origin of their people. Popular culture has a long history of portraying stereotyped and blatantly racist images of American Indians, especially in film. Cree filmmaker Neil Diamond's documentary *Real Indians* traces the history of Indians in Hollywood movies, identifying images we are all too familiar with. With roots in the vanishing Indian era of late 19th and early 20th century history, Hollywood filmmakers, like other photo documentarians of the time, such as Edward Curtis, rushed to capture Ind- images of Indians before they disappeared into the mists of the past. Throughout each era of the 20th century, Indians appeared in films as literal projections. Of non-natives' fantasies about Indians, they include the tragically vanishing Indian, the mystic warrior, the noble and ignoble savage, and eventually the groovy Indian, embodied as the environmental Indian, the iconic crying Indian, Iron Eyes Cody, the civil rights fighter Billy Jack, and others. Structural violence against native people often entails a staggering assortment of legislation, court cases, executive decisions, and municipal and state actions that directly affect their lives. This sort of violence will be explored throughout the book, but one of the most potent ways that violence of erasure is deployed in U.S. society is through education. A body of scholarship identifies the ways that Native children have, for generations, been miseducated under deliberately repressive federal policy, and a substantial body of research also identifies the ways children in public schools are miseducated on U.S. and Native history. Education scholar Timothy Lintner writes, "History is a delicate amalgam of fact and fiction." Tempered by personal and pedagogical perception, through the premise of history is rooted in empiricism, or though the premise of history is rooted in empiricism, the teaching of history is not so subjective. History classrooms are not neutral; they are contested arenas where legitimacy and hegemony battle for historical supremacy. James Lowen reflected this perhaps most famously in 1995, with the release of his now acclaimed book *Lies My Teacher Told Me*, in which he tackled the fallacies of the Columbus and Thanksgiving stories. Most tellingly, in a 2015 study, scholars examined the state standards for for teaching Indigenous history and culture in all 50 states and found a wide variance between them. Some states include indigenous curriculum content, and some do not. But the report concluded that overall, standards overwhelmingly present indigenous peoples in a pre-1900 context and relegate the importance and presence of indigenous peoples to the distant past. In other words, Indians are largely portrayed as extinct. Research on indigenous invisibility and erasure is naturally most prevalent in Native studies, 
but it intersects with broader research on race and ethnicity too. Critical race theorists and sociologists point out that U.S. society operates on a system of privilege. Systems of privilege can inhere in families, workplaces, and society in general, and are organized around the principles of domination, identification, and centeredness. Whiteness is centered by default, for example, because white people tend to occupy positions of power. They possess a form of unearned privilege. Scholars emphasize the idea that racism is more than acts of individual meanness. It is built into society and functions systematically, rendering it nearly invisible. White privilege then stems in large part from race. As a social construction, in other words, society and its state are based on a racial hierarchy in which those identified as white have always been at the top. A conservative backlash after the civil rights gains of the 1960s and 70s resulted in a widespread social denial that racism still exists. Overtly racist laws were abolished, but race and racism. Are still very difficult for white people to talk about. The myths about native peoples outlined in this book grow from the racialized social structures upon which the United States is built. Because these structures are systemic, the myths tenaciously persist despite changes in law and policy over time. Ultimately, they serve the settler state. And by extension, its international allies, who largely fail to recognize the political existence of indigenous peoples. In the effort to dismantle the myths, the chapters that follow attempt to unpack various tenets of settler colonialism, and at the same time construct a counter narrative, one based on truth. Myth one. All the real Indians died off. When they got off the boat, they didn't recognize us. They said, "Who are you?" And we said, "We're the people, the human beings." Oh, Indians! They said, because they didn't recognize what it meant to be a human being. But the predatory mentality shows up and starts calling us Indians and committing genocide against us. As the vehicle of erasing the memory of being a human being, John Trudell in Real Injuns. When the first Europeans came to the shores of what is now the United States, what many descendants of the original inhabitants known as Turtle Island, they encountered enigmatic people who challenged everything the newcomers believed about themselves and the world. The indigenous people. Looked different from them and spoke different languages, and their customs were mysterious and frightening. They inhabited a landscape that was entirely foreign and wild. Perhaps most disturbing, they were not Christians, but they had one thing the immigrants wanted: land, and the life it could give them. In the subsequent five centuries since those early encounters. Gaining access to that land has been the central factor that has shaped the relationships between indigenous peoples and immigrant. 
those relationships have never ceased to be vexed and conflict-ridden. They have been and continue to be characterized by seemingly endless ignorance, arrogance, and misunderstanding. Where do the myths about Native people come from? What are the motives behind them, and what purpose do they serve? To answer these questions, we need to look at the ways experts in the social sciences talk about history, the nature of the society we live in, and how modern countries are formed. There is not unanimous agreement on everything, but there are certain generalities that can reasonably be claimed. For instance, some social scientists talk about the master narratives of country that describe things like its national character and history. The narratives have many purposes, one of them being to construct a sense of national, or more to the point, state identity. In countries like the United States, where citizens otherwise have very little in common with each other besides a shared language or a history of immigration, the narratives reinforce a contrived sense of unity. They reflect what acclaimed international relations scholar Benedict Anderson famously called an imagined community. From where do the master narratives come? They are woven into the fabric of society from the start in its founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution, and then gain hold through the printed word, through the mass media, through the education system. They are amplified during times of national crisis and manifested through patriotic public displays during national holidays and through the singing of national anthems at sporting events and other public gatherings. As Anderson suggested, the effervescence generated in these public spaces is itself the outward expression of this imagined unity. A country's master narratives are not necessarily based in fact or truth. They are sometimes deliberately fictitious or contradictory of documented history. One of their purposes is to provide rationalization or justification for injustices committed against others in the name of democracy and liberty. In this way, many master narratives are more like state mythologies designed to undergird the patriotism and emotional commitment necessary in a loyal citizenry. All of the myths about American Indians emerge out of larger narratives that construct the United States as a place of exceptional righteousness, democracy, and divine guidance, manifest destiny, or what has been called American exceptionalism. The myths tell more about the non-native mind than they tell about native peoples. There are clues that point to the motivations, aspirations, and ambivalence about U.S. history and the collective identity of its citizens. We'll explore this more throughout the book. No myth about native people is as pervasive, pernicious, or self-serving as the myth of the vanishing native.
also known as the Vanishing Indian or the Vanishing Race. The myth, which has been building for centuries, reached an extreme at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, a time when the Indian Wars of Resistance had come to a conclusion, punctuated by the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890. In 1900, the U.S. Census counted approximately a quarter of a million Indians, a small fraction of the indigenous population in 1492, even based on a modest population estimate of 10 million. And census figures such as this have been used to prove the vanishing Indian myth. It's true enough that the native population had diminished dramatically throughout the centuries due to slavery, disease, war, and Christianization, which often took away people's names, languages, and even their clothing and hair. The larger point to understand about the self-serving function of the myth is how it was used to advance dubious, even nefarious, political agendas aimed at the continual seizure of Indian lands and resources. It was used by both the friends and foes of Indians to justify policies of forced assimilation, which would mean the final solution to the Indian problem, the ultimate disappearance of Indians, to facilitate the transfer of Indian treaty lands into settler ownership. One reason the myth of the vanishing native has been so pervasive is that it has been woven into history books by predominantly non-native historians and researchers who have wittingly or unwittingly served political agendas. But there has been a marked shift in the way history is being told, thanks to the increasing scholarship of native peoples and their allies, who in the past 40 to 50 years have been reframing conventional historical narratives. This reframing is often referred to generally as post-colonial theory or post-colonial studies, and it views history from a larger perspective that, among other things, recognizes the role of imperial and state power and its abuse in the shaping of the modern world. It sees history in terms of post-Columbus European and U.S. expansionism and the effects it had and continues to have on indigenous people. It also encompasses native perspectives by incorporating the growing academic field of Native American and international indigenous studies. This recent scholarship, sometimes derisively called revisionist history, has rendered incomplete, if not obsolete, much of the earlier scholarship. Within post-colonial studies is a theoretical framework known as settler colonialism. Viewing history through a lens of settler colonialism entails making distinctions between the ways colonialization played out in different places. And it does this in two fundamental ways. First, when European empires, predominantly the English, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and French, spread into Africa and Asia, they did so primarily to exploit 
natural resources such as gold, silver, other minerals, and timber. They established colonies as bases from which to run their business enterprises, and sometimes, especially in the cases of the Spanish and the French, married into indigenous cultures to secure better access to those resources. For the most part, however, they didn't send large populations from the metropoles, countries or empires of origin, into the colonies to live. Thus, in the African and Asian colonial contexts, the indigenous peoples remained the majority populations. Even though they had become dominated through military power and religious conversion. This is why the decolonization movements in those continents during the mid 20th century were able to re establish indigenous control. However, problematically, in, for example, Africa, and expel the foreign powers. But in the Americas and in a few other places, like Australia and New Zealand, The colonial powers engaged in wholesale population transfer, sending massive numbers of settlers to occupy the lands, resulting in new countries after successful rebellions separated colony from the empire. And they kept coming. As these settlers came to outnumber the indigenous populations, it became impossible for the indigenous people to expel the invaders. The theory of settler colonialism has gained wide acceptance among indigenous scholars in the United States and other settler states over the last decade. It postulates, as the Australian scholar Patrick Wolfe has written, that the singular goal of the settler state relative to indigenous peoples is the elimination of the native in order to gain access to land. The elimination of the native can take place in a multitude of ways, including full scale genocidal war. But it is usually more insidious than that. Not so much an overtly historical event, it becomes woven into the structure of settler society through practices that chip away at the very concept of native. Examples of these practices include officially encouraged. Intermarriage, privatization of indigenous lands, forced assimilation via social systems like boarding schools and other educational institutions and public schools in general, citizenship bestowal, child abduction and adoption, and religious conversion, to name just a few. The myth of the vanishing native can be traced precisely to the impulse of the state. To eliminate the native. It can be thought of as the central organizing myth from which most other popular myths about native peoples arise. As the predominant myth, it is informed by the past and reaches into the present and future to continue challenging ideas about who American Indians are on a cultural level. Which has ramifications at the legal level in determination of who is an Indian and who is not. It is a fully exclusionary project that limits native as a category of racial and political identity. 
This is why deconstructing myths about American Indians is so important. At their core, the debates about Indianness are debates about authenticity. Authenticity is predicated upon specific dynamics that define real Indians. These are common sense understandings that are built into society's dominant narratives, where certain assumptions are held to be unquestionably true. For example, real Indians are expected to look a certain way, based on an appropriate minimum blood quantum. Or real Indians live on reservations, not in cities, and they embody the requisite appropriate blood quantum. These examples imply an impossible ideal about Amer- Indians, as frozen in an unchanging past, where they are unable to be both modern and Indian. Today's Native Studies scholarship tackles these deeply embedded stereotypes. In one study, Jeannie O'Brien sought to understand how Indians were written out of New England history. Between 1820 and 1880, despite the fact that they continued to live in the region, based on reading hundreds of local histories, she discovered a pattern in which Indians were not recognized as Indians, in part to justify the seizure of their lands, due to their intermarriage with non-natives, or because they lived as modern non-native people did. O'Brien writes, "This penchant for Indian purity as authenticity also found essential expression in the idea of the ancient. Non-Indians refused to regard culture change as normative for Indian peoples. Thus, while Indians adapted to the changes wrought by colonialism by selectively embracing new ways and ideas." Such transformations stretched beyond the imaginations of New Englanders. Indians could only be ancients, and refusal to behave as such rendered Indians inauthentic in their minds. O'Brien's work, as that of numerous other scholars, is to challenge the myths that equate blood purity and cultural stasis with native authenticity. The myth of the vanishing Indian is entirely untrue, if for no other reason than because there are currently 567 federally recognized Native na- nations in the United States today, and because, according to the 2010 U.S. Census, 5.2 million people identified as Native American or Alaska Native, either alone or in combination with other races. About 2.9 million people identified as Native American or Alaska Native alone, but because the vanishing Indian myth is today more concerned with the authenticity of those who claim to be Indians, a nuanced argument is required, one that we will return to repeatedly. What this book is ultimately about is how society's hidden assumptions have led to the myths that persist. With mostly harmful consequences to native people.